Uh, this morning's reading is from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 16. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I have a recurring dream that um, I've had for a while, um, many years, and it goes like this. I'm about, I'm in year 12 at school. All my dreams, recurring dreams are in Ivanhoe for some reason. I'm not sure why. Because <laughs> it's where I grew up. And I'm in, I'm, I'm going to my advanced mathematics class, um, calculus, advanced calculus. And the teacher hands out a practice test. And in the dream, I haven't been to class for several weeks because I've been doing music practice and wagging. And I look down at the page and I freak out. It's all just code. I have no idea what it means, what the formulas mean. And I start to freak out. And then I wake up in a panic. I don't know if you've ever had a dream a bit like that, the exam dream. This is what it can be a bit like, I think, for some people, some of us, Many of us, when we open up the Bible and we look down and we're transported into a Middle Eastern context thousands of years ago, it's just like code. It's just hard to understand. It's like when you go to a Shakespeare play, Cold Turkey. Have you ever done that? And you've not had any background on it. You've not had the class on it. You're just thrown in there. Henry IV, go, you know. Um, and you just do not understand what they're talking about. Look, thou be true, do not give dalliance too much the rain, the strongest oaths are straw to the fire, I the blood be more abstemious, or else good night your vow. You have no idea what I just said, do you? That was Act 4, Scene 1, The Tempest. You know, imagine that for three hours. That's, that's what it can be like, you know. Perhaps you've been in a community group discussion about comparing this theological idea with this theological idea and 
your mind goes fuzzy. Why is Christianity so complex? You know, on the, on the one hand, Jesus says he wants us to have faith like a child and the innocence of a child and the humility of a child. But this does not mean that when we peer, when we pull back the curtains of Christianity and stare into the depths of God, that we find comic books. We are, we are looking into eternity. We're looking at the meaning of life and death. We're looking at the nature of God and humanity, the divine foundations of ethics and justice. So do you need a PhD in theology to be a Christian? Of course not. No, what you need is the Holy Spirit. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you have said yes to Jesus Christ, then you do have the Holy Spirit. You have received the Holy Spirit. And this means something profound that I want you to understand for this morning. You have been illuminated. The Holy Spirit has illuminated you. Being illuminated doesn't mean that suddenly the Holy Spirit gives you a divine USB drive that you plug into your hip and download 128 gigabytes of theology and Bible information. So what does being illuminated mean? What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to illuminate? Well, we're going to look at this passage from 1 Corinthians that we just had read out from Scott to see what it says. This is a passage from an extended letter of Paul, the apostle, to the church in Corinth. And this was a cosmopolitan, wealthy uh, advanced um, church that had lost its way. And Paul's trying to write to them saying, this is what's really important. This is how, how to bring correction to your church. This is how to get back on track. And there's kind of four main ideas in the whole of the book of 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians. Um, the first idea is the lordship of Christ. The second idea is worldwide worship. The third idea is the eschatological temple. And the fourth idea is the glory of God. Now, you don't need to necessarily know all that, but let's just say, our passage lands in this first theme, the Lordship of Christ. So as we start to look at the Holy Spirit who, who illuminates, I want to focus on this one concept, which is the wisdom of God. Because we'll see in this passage from the second chapter of 1 Corinthians that the focus of the spotlight is on the wisdom of God in the process of illumination. And Paul builds this argument up from, from the start of the letter. In the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, he reminds the church in Corinth that God had sent them there not to preach human ideas, human wisdom, but to, to preach God's wisdom. He says, we came to preach the message of the cross to us who are being saved is the power of God. And he concludes in the end of the chapter saying, it's because of, because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And then at the start of chapter 2, just to lead into the argument, he says, we, weren't, we didn't come to you just using smart academic ideas. We weren't also charismatic salesmen that were just you know, reeling you in to um, become Christians. No, rather, when we came to you and taught you about Jesus, this was, to use the words from 1 Corinthians 4, 1 verse 4, it was a demonstration of of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's wisdom. 
And this brings us to the beginning of our passage, verse 6. We do, however, he says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. And I'm just going to spend the first half of my talk focusing on this half of the verse. What is this message of wisdom that Paul is talking about? In verse 7, he says, we declare God's wisdom. So it's not just the wisdom of Paul on how to live. It's not his ideas. It's not the Greek philosophers, Plato and Socrates or the Stoics. It's not his mum's ideas on how to be a good person. You know, he's talking about God's wisdom. And what is the wisdom of God? Now, if I was to do an average um, you know, test and you were to have that dream of going into the maths test and you saw the question, what is the wisdom of God? Most of us probably would jump to the conclusion straight away, if you've had a bit of Christian teaching, that it's the gospel, it's the good news of, news of Jesus Christ. But it's actually not that, because the gospel is actually for all people. But what Paul mentions here is a message of wisdom among the mature. This is a message he has been teaching to mature Christians. The gospel that Jesus is Lord and offers salvation and forgiveness of sins is for the whole world, not just mature Christians. The wisdom that Paul is talking about in verse 7, he says, is a mystery. It is for discerning, experienced Christians. Later in chapter 2, um, verse 14 to 3, verse 4, he explains that there is such a thing as immature and mature Christianity. Paul says to the Corinthian church that he couldn't talk about some of these ideas because, frankly, they were too immature in their faith. So as the, the principal of Ridley College in Melbourne, Brian Rosner, writes in his book, his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he says, the message of wisdom is the full scope of God's teaching on salvation and the Christian life, which only the mature digest and appropriate. One thing about the nature of the wisdom of God is that it is like an enormous diamond that you can hold up. And you know how you can turn diamonds and look from different angles and see slightly different things? But you're looking at the same diamond. So the wisdom of God that Paul is talking about is a little bit like that because we can turn it and we can understand it to be Jesus Christ himself, known as the Word made flesh in the Gospel of John. Paul writes in, uh, in the first chapter at the end that Christ Jesus is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And some of the books of the New Testament are just totally written, that, that Paul wrote, devoted to this concept of God's wisdom and Christ, Jesus Christ, as God's wisdom. So later in the year, we're going to look at the book of Romans. It's essentially what that is. It's Paul entering into this concept. What is God's wisdom of Jesus Christ? But uh, Colossians is a bit like that. Ephesians is like that as well. So if you turn the diamond again, we see that perhaps the clearest way to understand what Paul means by God's wisdom is that he's talking about the mind of Christ, which is the wisdom of the cross applied to everyday life. And the fact that Christ on the cross is the centre of what Paul means by the wisdom of God, it's emphasised in this passage in two ways. Firstly, um, in verse 8, where Paul says that, None of the rulers of this age understood the wisdom of God. And that is why, because if they had, he said, they wouldn't have crucified him. If they really understood God's wisdom, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. Why? Because the cross is G of Jesus is God's wisdom. 
They just didn't get it. It's also emphasised in the fact that Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, um, which is a suffering servant song. Um, So he quotes, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived. The suffering servant songs in Isaiah are some of the most important prophecies that we have in the Old Testament that points to the Messiah that will die for his people. Um, And so Paul is just emphasising this point that Christ on the cross is God's wisdom as it applies to our life. Jesus actually makes this very point in Luke chapter 7 where he attracts the attention of a crowd. And in that crowd, Luke says, there are also tax collectors who are paying attention. And Jesus says that of all the people in the world that are born of a woman, he says, no one is greater in the world than John the Baptist. And then he says, but in the kingdom of God, even the least person is greater than John the Baptist. And so everyone's listening. But among the crowd is another group, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious experts, who were not baptised by John the Baptist and who just completely reject what Jesus is saying. And Jesus turns to them, those people who are rejecting what he's saying. And Jesus says, what would you know? On the, on the one hand, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine and you criticise him saying, he's got a demon. Then he says, the son of man comes, which is Jesus, eating and drinking. And you say, oh, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus says, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. The tax collectors and sinners know God's wisdom when they hear it because they are in the kingdom of God. They are even greater than John the Baptist. So we're not talking here about abstract ideas. We're not talking about abstract theological concepts. We're talking about the intersection between the wisdom of God, which is Christ on the cross and everything that that means for life, and then the intersection between that and our lives, what it practically means for us. And if you go on and read the rest of the book of 1 1 Corinthians, you'll see that that's what Paul does. He applies it to life, applies the wisdom of God to life. So in chapters 1 to 4, the cross means the end of the world's wisdom, the end of the world's power. The cross is the basis for Christian unity. In chapter 5, he says, um, Jesus' ultimate act of righteousness on the cross means you should kick out that guy in your church who's committing incest. Think about it. In chapter 6, he says, Jesus' death on the cross shows shows us that we should embrace righteous suffering rather than push on our own agenda onto other people. It goes on. He talks about honouring God with your body, why Jesus is our true Lord and why nobody else can be, why we should not cause our weaker brother or sister to stumble, why we shouldn't do anything to demean anyone in our church. So if you you want to embrace mature Christianity, if you want to... um, really grow in, grow in your faith and, and, and pursue the kind of maturity that Paul wants for the church in Corinth, then apply uh, your Christian faith. It's choosing to think a bit like this. Um, Jesus has come to the earth and, and died to provide forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God and eternal life for all those who put their faith in him. So how does this impact the way I use my money? 
it certainly puts things into perspective. I can know what I should and shouldn't be spending my money on, I think, if I think about it. And I can see that the accumulation of wealth isn't really wise for its own sake. Or we can think about it this way. How, how does this impact on the type of work I pursue? Jesus devoted his life to obedience and righteousness, avoiding injustice or sinfulness. Perhaps I could pursue work that helps people even, that focuses on those people that Jesus prioritised. Or perhaps I could promote the wisdom of God in my workplace somehow. There's no one formula, but this is the kind of wisdom, the practical wisdom that Paul is talking about. Mature Christians wrestle with thoughts like this, meditating on it day and night. But what Paul is not talking about is a two-scale kind of Christianity. So it's easy to think that. It's easy to get into this, am I immature or mature kind of thought. He's not creating elite Christians and rookie Christians. He's not saying if, you're not, if you can understand and explain complicated technical theology, you're elite, and if you can't, you're rookie. Because for Paul, there's no division that really matters apart from the division of those who are saved and those who are unsaved, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, those who have the Spirit and those who do not have the Spirit. That's all he minds, that's all he cares about. The difference between mature and immature is actually the difference of obedience, really. He wants everyone to be mature. He wants them all to embrace the wisdom of God and to live it out. And there is a distinction among the mature and immature in the church in Corinth because, frankly, some accept Paul's teaching and some don't. There's a similar point made in Hebrews 5, you might be thinking of this right now, which says that beginner Christians are like newborns who can only drink milk, and that's totally understanding, you know. So they they learn the basics, and then as they grow up into maturity, um, they learn to put the basics into practice, and then they can explore more things, the solid food Hebrews 5 talks about. Now here's the good news. The good news is this. The path to maturity, the path to the embracing of God's wisdom is not dependent on your intelligence or your trying really hard. That's not the path. I'll say it one more time. The good news is that the path to Christian maturity is not based on your intelligence or you trying really, really hard. Rather, the path to Christian maturity is walking in the light of the Holy Spirit. And this takes me to my second and last point, which is this, that the Holy Spirit shines a light onto the wisdom of God. See, the Christian faith is a covenantal relationship between us and the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you want to understand what that means, go to that training night on the 21st. The relationship comes with a set of beliefs about the world, such as what is real? What is good and evil? Why is life full of struggle? Is there any hope for us? And again, to quote Jerome's dad, Graham Cole, I love love that I can quote Jerome's dad. He writes in his book, He Who Gives Life, this, Christianity claims a special revelation from God that informs its construal, which means special interpretation of reality, and its answers to these fundamental questions. In other words, supernaturalism. 
The relationship, this is continuing the quote, the relationship to God, it claims, is predicated on revealed truth. As we shall see, the Holy Spirit plays the pivotal role in making God knowable and known. He's the searcher of the depths of God. So the path to Christian maturity is in the embracing of supernaturalism that Graham Cole talks about. It's realizing that to understand God's wisdom, you need supernatural intervention. You need the Holy Spirit's power. And this is what the Holy Spirit provides. If you look at verse 10b, it says this amazing, profound thing. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And Paul borrows this phrase, deep things, from Gnosticism. And he's trying to connect to the Greek thought of the, of the people in the church. The deep things of God, though, are different to Gnosticism because they're not philosophical ideas. They're not withheld from the common people and only given to certain special people, the elite. That's what Gnosticism teaches. Rather, the deep things of God has as its foundation a mystery. A mystery which has now been revealed which is the Son of God becoming a man and then living and then dying on the cross to provide uh, forgiveness and salvation to all those who have faith in him. This is a disclosed plan which has now been revealed. This is the profound mystery that now God has revealed to us by his Spirit, it says in verse 10a. The Holy Spirit has complete and direct access to this knowledge. And so he's able to reveal it to the apostles as they teach um, and then who declare God's wisdom to the mature. But we can't ever attain this wisdom of God without the aid of the Holy Spirit. It's not possible, and the passage says why, because the wisdom of God is hidden and cannot be found. When we arrived here this morning, the, the office in the music room at the back there, which gives us access to all the mic leads and the amplifier and everything had a new lock on it we didn't have the key we were locked out but that i was able to ring the music teacher and find where the secret key is held right you can't do that with god's wisdom there's no one to ring apart from god himself by his holy spirit it's only the holy spirit can show you where the secret key is to god's wisdom it's also a mystery it says in verse six to seven which cannot be solved. So you can sit there in the books for years, your whole life, you will never solve the mystery of God's wisdom. The only way you will is if the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. So there's no place for the the, the proud Christian who thinks, I'm so smart, I know everything about God. Rather, all Christians should be humble and thankful to a God that's revealed these mysteries to them. And the reason the Holy Spirit can do this, it says in the passage, is, is explained in verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And this is a like-knows-like argument. Graham Cole, again, writes this. The spirit in a man and a woman knows the person from the inside in a way that the outsider does not. There is privileged access. Likewise with God and God's spirit there is privileged access. However, that spirit can make the knowledge available and has done so through the gospel. 
So if you were to have a spirit scanning device and you were to scan my spirit, you would find out what I long for, what I love, what I dislike, um, what I struggle with, what I wish was different in my life, and you would have a very clear understanding of who I am. Well, we have that scanning device for God. Well, we have the Holy Spirit. And Paul is drawing a big line here in the sand between things that are human and divine. He places the things of God squarely outside the limits of human knowing. Now think about Jesus, what Jesus said to Peter, you might remember from Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, when he confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus didn't compliment him on how smart or learned he was, but he explained, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but but by my Father in heaven. We simply cannot find God through reason, research or intuition. We need divine revelation. We need illumination from the Holy Spirit. And in the words of Karl Barth, the theologian, God is known through God alone. Last Sunday I talked about um, a bit of a funky idea. It might have confused some of you, but I'll say it again. Hopefully it confuses you less. Um, The idea of the two advocates. So... We can think of the Son of God as our advocate in the throne room of heaven, our external advocate in the throne room of heaven, and the Holy Spirit as our second advocate in the throne room of our heart, convicting us of our sin and enabling us to believe. Well, we can also think, when we think about illumination, about our two mediators. The Son of God as our mediator for our salvation. It is through him that we are saved, and our Holy Spirit is our second mediator, and the Holy Spirit is our mediator to the knowledge of God, is our knowledge of God mediator. It is through him that we can know. Gordon Feeth, great theologian, says, the Holy Spirit is our instructor. Our instructor. Now, there's another theological word I want to throw in there. It's not too hard to remember, and that is the word inspiration. The Holy Spirit inspired the prophets and the apostles to write the Bible. And then the Holy Spirit illuminates people, the hearers and the readers of the Bible, so that we can understand it. In our passage, there are actually three verbs for teaching and three verbs for hearing. Um, If you look at verse 12, what we have received, I'll try and underline, there's actually seven, I think, but two of them are pretty much saying the same thing. Verse 12, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities. I should have emphasized taught too, so taught. Sorry, explain now. I'm getting lost. Let's go back to verse 13. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So when we teach the wisdom of God, The Holy Spirit illuminates us and we're able to understand and speak and explain. The Spirit empowers them to speak. The Spirit empowers them to explain. Then when we hear, the Spirit illuminates us to receive, 
to understand or discern and to accept. The Spirit works in our hearts as we receive, as we read the Bible. So right now, as I teach you, um, think about what the Spirit has done. The Spirit has illuminated me in my preparation as I've been thinking about what to say and how to apply it to our lives. Um, the Spirit also illuminated the books that I read, the writers of the books that I read, as they were writing the commentaries and the, the books on theology. Um, the Spirit illuminated the conversations that I had with various people along the way over the last few weeks about this topic. And the Spirit is illuminating you right now. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you are a Christian, the Spirit is illuminating you now to understand what I'm saying and to, to let it affect you and to change you, to bring you to a response. It, it, it actually affects our hearts. And in the Bible, our heart refers to the core of us where our thoughts, our will, and our emotions are. So you can talk about the wisdom of God, but then it's not affecting your heart. But when you are illuminated with the Holy Spirit, it moves us to action and stirs our affections. So I just want to give you three obvious applications. Here's the first one. Given that this is the case, given that if you are a Christian, you have been illuminated, Keep going in your Christian walk, trusting that the Holy Spirit is working in you. There's a proverb that sim- sim- simply explains this. Put your trust, Proverbs 3 verse 5, put your trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not depend on your own understanding. The good news about the illuminating Holy Spirit is that if we stay as Christians throughout our lives, the Holy Spirit will continue to work in us and change us with the wisdom of God. The Holy Spirit will continue to change you by opening your mind to accept its truth, the wisdom's truth. Just hang in there. Think of it a bit like osmosis, spiritual osmosis. I grew up with a musician for a mother, and she used to drag me to um, her work, and I would sit under the piano in choir practice. And I'm sure that that, through osmosis, improved my musicality. And the same thing goes with being a Christian. Just by hanging around God throughout your whole life, you will grow as a Christian. The Holy Spirit will change you. There's nothing you can do to stop it if you are in Christ. So if you've said yes to Jesus, have confidence that that is happening. Just hang in there. Whether you realize it or not, you are growing. The second thing is to accept the wisdom of God as true and apply it to your life and stop fighting it. So as you hear the Bible taught to you and as you read the scriptures and the Holy Spirit prods your heart, as the Holy Spirit does, shines a big spotlight on your, on your heart and on the scriptures and brings that together, and you know, know deep down that the, the, the wisdom of God is true, sometimes we can be divided in ourselves and we can fight it off. We can know that God's wisdom is true for us, but we can still trust in the wisdom of the world. I'm saying stop fighting. If you're trying to make a huge life decision, like what job to take or how to use your money or who to have a romantic relationship with, if you are in Christ, you have the mind of Christ, it says in verse 16. Whoa, you know, you already know what to do. Sometimes we can be a bit stupid and fight against it, though. You know, you know what that's like. But now you have to put into practice. Don't be like the Corinthian church who just kind of blocks it out. This is what it means to be a mature Christian. And lastly, ask God to help you to teach and also to hear the word of God. 
the wisdom of God. Know that you have the power of the Holy Spirit available to you now if you are a Christian. As you try and explain to your kids, for example, if they say to you, Mommy, why, why is God invisible? And you go, well, I don't know. You know, you, you can ask God on the spot, give me the words to say, help me to explain these tricky ideas. As you talk to your friend who's not a Christian, ask God to speak through you, the Holy Spirit to speak through you, your words. As you're driving to community group, you can pray for your friends, for the people in your community group, that the Holy Spirit will um, illuminate the person who's leading the Bible study and the people who are hearing the Bible study and the whole conversation so that they can have their hearts changed, their, their will moved, so that they can apply it to their lives. You will still have times when you are hearing the Bible taught and it goes over your head. But know this, God has not thrown you in the deep end of the swimming pool and abandoned you. He has given you the Holy Spirit so that you can have understanding. Persist and over time you will grow. You will see the deep things of God because you have been illuminated. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that we have this privileged access to the deep things of God. And we pray that we can be mature Christians who put into action the things that you have shown us to be true. Amen.